Shoppers find more product shortages on supermarket shelves. We'll tell you why. The new Postmaster General for the U.S. comes with supply chain experience. And new data reflects the new normal of business activity in the logistics sector. Pull up a chair and join us as the editors of DC Velocity discuss these stories, as well as news and supply chain trends on this week's Logistics Matters podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Maloney. I'm the editorial director of DC Velocity. Welcome. Logistics Matters is sponsored by Fortna. Fortna partners with the world's leading brands to transform their distribution operations to keep pace with digital disruption and growth objectives. Known worldwide as the distribution experts, Fortna designs and delivers intelligent solutions powered by their proprietary software to optimize fast, accurate, and cost-effective order fulfillment. For more information, visit Fortna.com. As usual, Senior News Editor Ben Ames and Senior Editor Victoria Kickham will be along to provide their insight into the top stories of this week. But before we get to them, I would first like to share an interview that I did yesterday with Jason Lusk of Purdue University's Agricultural Economics Department. Here is our conversation. Anyone who has been going to their local grocery stores recently has begun to see shortages, especially in the meat departments of the stores. We've also heard about the many cases of COVID-19 that have affected the nation's meat packing facilities. So joining us today to talk about the difficulties in getting products from farms to the nation's tables is Jason Lusk, a distinguished professor and head of the Agricultural Economics Department at Purdue University. Welcome, Jason. Yeah, happy to chat. Jason, if our nation's farms are continuing to produce our food products as they normally do, why are we seeing such shortages? Well, I think the it does seem a bit of a paradox, right, that you, you read stories that farmers are dumping milk on the one hand, and then on the other hand, we have a hard time finding gallons of milk in the grocery store. And, and the resolution to that seemingly par- seeming paradox is that there are people in the middle, the processing sector that transform those agricultural products into the food that we eat. And I think, you know, one of the challenges we're seeing, particularly at the moment in the meat processing sector, is that you know, even though we have a large number of farmers and a large number of consumers, that the, there's a bit of an hourglass shape and that all that product has to flow through a handful of large processors. So, um, you know, in the meat industry, for example, the 10 largest beef producers process more than 60% of all cattle. So all those cattle have to go through just a handful of really large plants. And so that can serve sometimes as a bit of a bottleneck. And, of course, we've heard on the news the major problems that a number of those meatpacking facilities have had with the rage of COVID-19 through their facilities. Uh, do you think steps are being taken to be able to correct that at this point? Well, there's certainly a lot of effort at the moment. Um, you know, I think uh, plants have been temperature testing workers. They've been spacing out workers within the plant and inst- installing uh, partitions and dividers between workers. Um and, you know, they're doing the best they can, but it's a challenging situation. These are, are very labor-intensive facilities um, and uh, working in cold and refrigerated environments. So, you know, a large you know, beef or pork processing plant has at least a couple of thousand, in some cases, 4,000 workers under that one roof. So I think that's the, that's the challenge there. Um, and, you know, given the president's order to try to get these plants back online they're, they're working hard at it but you know even if you turn on the lights you got to still get the workers to show up and um, make sure that they feel safe in their environment and that their community feels safe uh, with the workers uh, going back to work so it's, it's a complicated situation um, we've been 
processing about 40% fewer cattle and hogs over the last few days. That sort of seems to have leveled off in the past couple of days. So hopefully we're making some progress and we'll get back up to fuller speed. Right. And it's not something that someone could redesign their plant and their operations to be able to space people out easily. I mean, they have set facilities, they have set equipment, set working platforms and tables. So it'd be very difficult, I would think, to to reimagine that overnight, to, to change the way the facility operates. That's right. And the question is, like, as in so many cases in, in the food processing sector, like, is it worth it making millions of dollars of investment if we're only going to be in the situation for the next few weeks? I mean, that's the challenge. We actually are seeing at the retail level some of the implications of reduced, you know, availability of labor in these packing plants. So, you know, most of that labor is involved in what you might call disassembly, you know, further breaking down, a, you know, a, 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 you know, a side of an animal, for example. And, um, you know, when you can't put as many workers in the place, the plant, you're not going to disassemble as much. And so one of the things I'm noticing, even in my own local grocery stores, is, is much more vacuum packaged products, uh, many more whole muscle cuts. And that's a direct consequence of the fact that there's less labor in these plants. Even if they're open, they're not running at 100 percent and they're packaging in different ways. I also understand, too, that uh, a, a lot of the food goes to restaurants. And with restaurants not operating at full capacity, too, that's uh, allowed there to be uh, products that aren't packaged or designed for consumer use on their on the kitchen table. That's exactly right. So some of that vacuum packaging of meat that I mentioned, that's you know a direct consequence of the fact that that's how we often package for sending to restaurants. So some of it we're just repurposing. In other cases, it's actually been a lot more challenging. Take dairy, for example. Um, you know, you may have a production facility that's that's packaging milk in little small cartons for schools that are no longer open at the moment. So they can't just, you know, if they don't have the capital, the equipment to do it, they can't just suddenly start repackaging in gallon jugs for the grocery store or even cheese, you know, manufacturing plants. They, they may ha- be designed to deliver large boxes, hundreds of pounds, maybe even of cheese to uh, restaurants, to, to, you know, pizza joints, that sort of thing. And again, they, they may not have the equipment on hand to, to be packaging in the little, you know, one pound bags that we buy in our grocery store. So that that's really the challenge there is that the way we buy foods, the way food gets delivered to restaurants and cafeterias is very different in many ways than the way food gets delivered to us in the grocery store. Is that the same reason why this food, excess food just can't be donated to local food banks because it's not packaged the way they could use it? That's exactly right. So, you know, if you're a local food bank, what are you going to do with raw milk? <laughs> I mean, you, know, you still need to homogenize, pasteurize, package. Um, so, but in, and that's true to a lesser extent for even other things, fruits, fresh fruits and vegetables. It's both the issue of, you know, chopping, getting them there. Um, the other issue, of course, too, is uh, it's costly to transport and move food products. So I, I think on the one hand, you know, it's, it's devastating and disheartening to see when a farmer has to plow under a field. But you, you also have to keep in mind it costs money to harvest that. It takes labor to harvest that. It costs money to transport that. Uh, produce to market. Who's going to who's going to pay for that? Um, you know, are we expecting the farmer to pay for that when they're also having to plow under their profits? It seems kind of hard to believe. So I think you know you got to you know we want the food system to distribute these things, but you also have to think about people's economic incentives to get that produce from the farm to wherever people need it. We've also seen uh, animals being euthanized as well. And is there a reason why the animals are being killed at the farm level rather than just being kept around until the market improves? Well, you know, this depends really on animal species here. So that's less likely to happen with beef cattle because you can hold um, 
you know, the younger beef cattle out on pasture a little while longer before moving them into a feedlot. This is, is mainly a problem in, in hogs in particular and in, in poultry production where it's a much more of a just-in-time production system. So, um, you know, just to you know, give you a sense of this, you know, there, you know, sows that were bred three months ago are having babies today based on decisions that were made three months ago. Those babies need somewhere to go. And the way the where they normally go is into barns, into farrowing houses, into nurseries, and then into finishing houses. But when those pigs aren't leaving those finishing houses to go to to the slaughter plant, um, there's no extra room for them. So you know what's a farmer to do? You can change rations and diet, uh, change some barn conditions to try to slow down growth, and many of them are doing that. Um, you can try to you know reduce stocking density, put more animals in the same space. But at some point, you don't want to do that. That's not good for animal welfare. Uh, so you do that a little bit, but then at some point, you know, you got to realize there, these are confined feeding operations are confined to protect the animals from the weather, but also from other, you know, animal diseases to protect us as consumers uh, from foreign diseases. And so, um, you know, it's not like we want to turn all these animals out to pasture, even if we could, uh, there's not the equipment there to do it. So the, the point, the constraint really here is space. You have, you know, piglets entering the system and nowhere to go. And so, yes, there is some flex in the system, but it's got to give at some point if we can't move these animals through the process. And maybe just to add on that, you know, a little bit more, I think some folks don't really understand the scale of the problem here. You know, a big pork processing plant might process 20,000 hogs a day, every day, every working day at least. So you might think, well, let's just send them to our local butcher. Well, let's suppose you have a local butcher that's even of any scale at all and does 200 head a day. That that butcher would have to run 100 extra days to make up for one lost day of one of these big plants that's gone down. And so I think that gives you a sense of the scale of the problem. There's no, there aren't really good, easy fixes. And you're right, you know, the worst last case option that no producer wants to do um, is potential euthanization. And, and I think, you know, I've heard, I don't have any personal first firsthand experience of that going on, but I have read some of the news accounts um, you know, and I think it's a dire situation at the moment. Again, not one that I don't think anybody really wants in the food system. So do you have any predictions on when things will get better and when we'll be back to normal operations and supply? Well, I think, you know, it depends on, you know, which part of the food system we're talking about. You know, I think we had sort of this peak stocking out period that happened in mid to late March. And a lot of that was the disruption that happened from the closure of food away from home and a big increase in spike in demand in grocery stores. And that did cause some problems, but, but we largely responded and worked through that. The situation we're in now is really this bottleneck that's happening in meat packing and the, the fact that those meat packing plants are down, which is a, a slightly different issue. Uh, how much longer? It, you know, it's really a day-by-day touch-and-go situation, and it, it'll depend on how quickly we can get these processing plants back online and um you know uh, hopefully we can get the ones that are closed down open and we can um get them you know back or back to full capacity but you know i think we have to be realistic and know that even some of the runs that ones that are running closer to full capacity you know they could have a worker you know outbreak tomorrow i don't want to be pessimistic but also don't want to just be uh you know fanciful and think that you know um everything's you know, perfect and you're going to return back to normal. So it, it's a day by day. It's one of the reasons we're tracking these statistics closely is to see what's happening and whether we're making improvements. Again, that was my conversation from yesterday with Jason Lusk, a distinguished professor and head of the Agricultural Economics Department at Purdue University. My thanks to Jason for taking time out of his very busy schedule to join us. 
Ben and Victoria, I was amazed at just how complex a situation is within the agricultural supply chain. Normally, everything just seems to happen like clockwork until something like COVID-19 strikes, and it's something we really just take for granted. Yeah, I agree, Dave. Um, well, the food supply chain is certainly something that you know everyone's focused on, whether it's um, you know you're in the course of ordering things or what you're seeing in the grocery stores. And um, your report actually ties in nicely with the Logistics Managers Index report, which we uh, reported on this week. Um, and it showed, um, in relation to that, it showed that there was a, a, a surge in March and April really dropped in terms of growth. Um, and the surge in March uh, is what they, uh, they realized it was due to panic buying um, in the pandemic and it's specifically of groceries, essentials, all those kinds of things. And what we saw in April was a, a downswing and it actually, the LMI, um, which is a gauge of business activity in the logistics industry, I should say, hit its lowest level in the three and a half year indus, uh, uh, index history, 51.3, I think it was. Um, and although that's low, it uh, still signifies that the industry is in growth mode. And that's largely because, you know, people are ordering food and essentials and medical supplies and healthcare. That's really keeping things going. So um, the level that we're seeing now, like I said, it's, it's still growing. It's returning to sort of a slow and steady pace that researchers have been tracking over the last couple of years. So, um, you know, bad news is that things are down and actually down compared to a year ago, too. But good news is that the industry is still still moving. Thanks, Victoria. And Ben, you wrote about the man appointed as the new Postmaster General of the United States, and he comes with a logistics management background. He does, and uh, he's going to need all the experience that he can get. He, he's, uh, he's not taking on an easy job here. Uh, looking at some of Victoria's comments uh, there about recent months, uh, the, the Postal Service uh, just today actually reported its uh, most recent quarter uh, of earnings in, in which uh, its revenues ticked up uh, just slightly. Uh, but that was not enough to, to compensate for a lot of the troubles that the uh, service is having uh, because it, its net loss for the quarter was $4.5 which was a little more than double uh, what it was for the same quarter last year. Now, that quarter ran from January through the end of March. Uh, so the Postal Service says that uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic had only just begun to affect those numbers. And as a matter of fact, uh, the, the census, which happens every 10 years, uh, had uh, supported some of those numbers, in, in fact, going into it. So uh, the USPS says that we may uh, be up for some even worse numbers uh, when, when the next quarter comes around. Uh, so the, the man taking on the challenge of uh, that very difficult job is named Louis DeJoy. Uh, he was uh, confirmed uh, just two days ago. Uh, he will replace Megan Brennan, uh, who was a postal worker from Pennsylvania who'd come up through the ranks. Uh, as opposed to that sort of background, uh, DeJoy uh, comes at it as a logistics management background. He had founded and run a company in North Carolina called New Breed Logistics that was uh, acquired for a little more than $600 million by XPO, uh, the very fast-growing 3PL that has uh, bought up trucking lines and, uh, and, and other logistics providers and, and built itself into a real colossus. Uh, he served as an executive at, at XPO uh, for a couple of years and, and then uh, has been on the board of that company since then. Uh, so he, he now is going to come into uh, quite a challenging affair uh, because the Postal Service has seen, as all of us use email every day, a lot fewer people uh, you know, send paper letters anymore. And at the same time, when we all buy things from Amazon, uh, the Postal Service is 
had to carry an enormous number of parcels. Uh, so their job is really, it's been changing incredibly quickly uh, that, as, as we've all sort of noticed in our private lives in recent years. Uh, so it's really going to be interesting to see uh, how DeJoy handles that. And, and as the parcel service, it is really the most profitable part of the postal system. Um, and I know a lot of parcel shippers right now are concerned that because it's profitable, they're uh, probably in for increases that are going to come up uh, as a way of trying to balance the budget for the losses from the regular mail delivery service. So it'll be interesting to follow. That, that's exactly right. And actually, uh, some of the analysts in the space uh, have pointed out that, that the, the Trump administration, which, which is ultimately um, responsible for nominating the Postmaster General, uh, that the, the president has, has long been in favor um, of having the Postal Service have much higher um, parcel rates, uh, but particularly uh, in, in terms of trying to even the ledger uh, for delivering that, that flood of Amazon packages and, and boxes that come through. Uh, the Postal Service's point of view is that it's trying to maximize um, its, its asset utilization and, and fill its volumes and, and price, it, uh, price their parcels that way. Uh, but the administration has been pushing them to uh, try to make it more profitable. So we'll have to see which direction DeJoy goes. And just like everything, the Postal Service is affected by the COVID-19 crisis. And we also want to remind you of our continuing COVID-19 coverage that we have and our growing list of resources that are available on dcvelocity.com. So go there to check them out. Thank you, Ben and Victoria, for sharing the highlights of the news this week. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Good to be here. If you would like more information on the stories we discussed on Logistics Matters, be sure to check out dcvelocity.com for more details. And please provide any comments or feedback that you'd like to give us on our new podcast by emailing us at podcast at dcvelocity.com. And a reminder, the Logistics Matters is sponsored by Fortna. Fortna partners with the world's top brands to transform distribution operations into competitive advantage. Expertise includes distribution strategy, DC operations, micro-fulfillment, automation, and intelligent software. Distribution solutions designed today for tomorrow's challenges. Learn more about the distribution experts at Fortna.com. We'll be back again next week with another edition of Logistics Matters. Please stay safe, and we'll see you then.